0: Thank you very much. Well, I did have a preach all planned and then Florence spoke it last week. Oh, you know when that happens, it's annoying. But she preached a very good word. So I'm going to choose the title today, don't settle for second best. Now you might have to settle for second best today because Florence preached such a good word last week. But I'm going to be mentioning Florence a lot. I'll try and talk about God a bit more, but I'm going to be saying as in Florence's preach, as in Florence's preach. So bear with. So, today I've been asked to read, uh, I think it's 79 verses or something, but I'm not going to. I always get the best ones. I do, don't I? Not so many hard names this week, so it's all right. So I'm going to read 10 verses for now and see how we get on. So, Joshua 18, 18 to 19, I'm going to read 1 to 10. The whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The country was brought under their control, but there were still seven Israelite tribes, over half of them, who had not yet received their inheritance. So Joshua said to the Israelites, How long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you? Appoint three men from each tribe, I will send them out to make a survey of the land and to write a description of it, according to the inheritance of each. Then they will return to me. You are to divide the land into seven parts. Judah is to remain in its territory on the south, and the tribes of Joseph in their territory on the north. After you have written descriptions of the seven parts of the land, bring them here to me, and I will cast lots for you in the presence of the Lord our God." The Levites, however, do not get a portion among you because the priestly service of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have already received their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it to them. As the men started on their way to map out the land, Joshua instructed them, Go and make a survey of the land and write a description on it. Then return to me, and I will cast lots for you here at Shiloh in the presence of the Lord. So the men left and went through the land. They wrote its description on a scroll, town by town, in seven parts, and returned to Joshua in the camp at Shiloh. Joshua then cast lots for them in Shiloh in the presence of the Lord, and there he distributed the land to the Israelites according to their tribal divisions. And here are the tribes who had not yet received their land, who's going to get it as we go along the preach. Now, a few weeks ago, I spoke about um, how this was a big deal for the Israelites. We read about all the towns, all the villages, all the land, all the boundaries, and we think, oh, just a load of names. But for them, it was a big deal. They'd gone from the covenant promise of Abraham, the most biggest promise that God could ever give them, and now they're finally, finally here. So hopefully God will forgive me for not going through all the boundaries, towns and villages, but for the Israelites, it was a big deal for them. Now, I'll show you the map, hopefully. Where's the map? There it is. So, the ones in bold are the ones who had not yet received their land, and the, uh, the three men from each tribe were due to go out and allocate this land. Now, this all seems crazy, doesn't it? The Israelites had got to this stage, they'd defeated 31 kings. In all of this land, now seven of the tribes had not even claimed what was promised to them. In fact, they hadn't even asked for it. Now, Florence did a good job at pointing out how it still worked out to be 12 tribes, and it's nothing to do with the Day family. So Levi Levi was uh, the third son of uh, Jacob. He's excluded So uh, the Levites, they were the priests of the land. That was their blessing. They weren't allowed any land. They were allowed to live through it all. So I'm not going to give you any bonus points to sing the song from a particular musical about a technical dream coat. But Joseph was the favorite son, wasn't he? Now by rights, if anyone was going to get more, it should have been Reuben, shouldn't it? Because he was the firstborn son, but he was a bit of a naughty boy. I'm not going to say why, uh, because there were small ears in here. But if you want to read what happened, it was in Genesis 35. So Joseph got the bigger portion, he got the extra blessing, and his tribe was split into two, uh, as he had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And if we go back to the map, we can see how much land they got. And as Florence mentioned just, uh, last week, they got a lot. And funnily enough, as um, she mentioned last week, at the end of chapter 17, they were moaning that they didn't have enough land. So on one hand, you had two tribes, which technically should have been one, complaining they didn't have enough land, and seven tribes who hadn't even claimed theirs. So going back to these seven tribes, they were all living in the land of Ephraim, settling for second best. So Joshua says to them, "'How long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land the Lord has given you?' So a question we've got to ask this morning is why? Why hadn't they claimed the land? They might have been tired from all the fighting that had already been. Isn't that how we always feel? After all the years of conquest and battle, who can blame them? Now they had peace in the land of Ephraim, surely that was enough for now? They might have also been used to living a nomadic lifestyle. Can you read that? Nomadic life is great, except the kids are constantly asking, are we there yet? This generation of Israelites might find it a bit odd to consider laying down roots and settling down. Being travellers was all they knew. They might have feared hard work. Now, I thought this was a bit mean for the youth of today. A job? Can't I just start a GoFundMe page? If they claimed their own land, they would have to work at it. They'd have to keep, out, uh, keep on clearing out the evil Canaanites and clearing the land. Surely it's much easier to let your distant cousins do that while you lift off their hard work. And the final push: this might have been sorry, this might have seemed to be the most daunting part. It was much easier to sit back and take it easy. But surely this would have been a clouded view of their situation. Surely logic would allow them to look at how far they'd come from being a people enslaved in Egypt, wandering through the wilderness for 40 years and then fighting all those kings and considering that God's hand was in it all. Surely his hand would be in it for this final push too. Isaiah 40 verse 31 is a well-known verse. I'm going to read it along with verse 30 and it says... Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, they will run and not grow weary, they will walk and not be faint. Perhaps the seven tribes of Israel could have done with these words. So, what can we learn from all of this? How does it relate to us? For the Israelites, this covenant promise was specific to them but surely God has promised us so much too. So I'm going to give three things not to take away from what the Israelites did and three things we should take away from how they responded. So the first thing not to do, they hadn't even asked for their promise for their inheritance. Have we asked God what he has promised us? For some of us, we might know exactly what God has promised us and we're waiting patiently like Caleb did. Florence spoke about him having to wait 45 years from the point of him spying the land in Canaan originally, and he had to wait all that time, but he knew what God promised him. Maybe like him, we know that God has said it, so it will happen. For others, we might be unsure of what God has promised us for our lives. To be honest, I'm going to put myself in that category. But a word of advice I was given is to just keep doing what you believe is right until you hear the next call. For example, when I was a teenager in secondary school, I had no idea what to do with my life. I felt confident enough in myself to know that was okay. Although people told me I was a disgrace to the school for not going to university, but that's another story. All I knew is that I felt called to work for people to help them do their job. So I became an admin assistant for a charity in London. Then I became an admin assistant for a company in Sidcup, And then I became an admin assistant for a company in Sevenoaks. Sense the theme here? And likewise in church, I have the same mantra. I never felt called to play the guitar. I never felt called to preach. But I know in doing these things, I'm helping someone else and supporting their own roles. Now, if God promises me something off, see ya, I'm off. Now, the other scenario is that we don't even know what God's promised us. If you feel like you're in this category, can I challenge you to ask God? You might be surprised that you feel led by him if you only go and ask. And if we don't ask, we're more likely to settle for second best in our lives. Number two, the Israelites were complacent. Florence mentioned this last week, that the Israelites needed to put in their own work and effort. The promised land was God's gift, but that does not cancel our own human responsibility. His promises are not intended as sedatives, but as stimulants to encourage us to move forward. And don't forget, there were already five tribes who had been spurred on to reach their goal. And number three, they weren't inspired by these five tribes. Imagine being a member, you haven't had your land allocated to you because you haven't even asked. Looking at your cousins from the other five tribes who'd already claimed their own land. Surely that should have encouraged them and inspired them to accomplish these great things themselves. And likewise with us, God has blessed us by allowing us to walk alongside each other. So are we inspired by each other? Do we spur each other on? Do we encourage each other to run the race that God has set before us? And if that wasn't enough... The whole Bible is something to be inspired by. All the characters who knew their promise. There's too many to mention. Pick a name and they had a promise and they knew what they were called to do. They'd never settled for second best. Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's move on to the positive, shall we? The seven tribes didn't get jealous, and the five tribes weren't boastful. Sort of following on from the previous point, although it's bad to be uninspired, it's equally not good to get jealous especially of what others around you have got and what God has given them. We forget we share the same God with the same wealth, the same blessings, and we are as much entitled to them as the people around us. The Israelites from the seven tribes could easily have looked at the five tribes, got jealous about what they had and they had managed to accomplish, and just moan about it. I'm glad that they didn't. I think Joshua would have had some uh, stern words for them if they had. And it's not mentioned either that the five tribes were ever boastful about reaching theirs. I got it, you didn't. Na, 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 na. Now Christians can face the same temptation of boasting that my God-given promises are better than yours. Again, we forget we share the same God who can easily take away if we're not obedient to Him. Ephesians four verse seven says, "But to each one of us." That excludes. No one. Everyone is included in this. Each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now Joshua casts lots as the fairest way of apportioning land. And likewise, Jesus apportions his promises to us, how he sees fit. And do we question his judgment? Sometimes. But when we get to the point of acceptance that my lot is what God has intended for me, your lot is what God has intended for you, we are able to run a race confidently towards those promises. They also kept God in the centre. After 40 years of being carried in the wilderness, the Ark of the Covenant finally had a home. And Shiloh was a good choice, as per the map, in a beautiful red star. Shiloh was central to the nations geographically, but it was also significant for another reason – Shiloh means peaceful, a sense of being safe, and some translate it to mean tranquility town. Isn't that just so fitting for what God wants? And in God, we find this peace and a place of safety and refuge. Now, for the history enthusiasts amongst you, Shiloh was destroyed later, and in Jeremiah 7.12, we find out it was because the Israelites were disobedient. David later moved the ark to Jerusalem, which also means peace. Evidence enough that God wants to reside in a land of peace with his people. But then Jerusalem fell twice. The city was sieged once by the Babylonians in 587 BC and again by the Romans in 70 AD. And what was the reason for these? It's not hard to guess. The Israelites' disobedience. And Lamentation talks about how sad it was to look at how Jerusalem had fallen just because of the people's sin. However we should let this all encourage us to remain obedient to God and keep him at the centre of our own lives. And the final good news, they got there in the end. By the end of Joshua 19, verse 48, the Israelites had obeyed God, thankfully, deciding not to settle for their second best and received their land with a little prompting and pushing from their leader. Now, maybe that's a sermon in and of itself, And now Joshua could finally claim his own promise. In Joshua 19, verse 49, it says, When they had finished dividing the land into its allotted portions, the Israelites gave Joshua, son of Nun, an inheritance among them, as the Lord commanded. So they're catching on, be obedient to God, it's the way forward. They gave him the town he asked for, Timnath-serah, in the hill country of Ephraim, And he built up the town and settled there. Now I love how Caleb's request for land is at the beginning of the allocation of land west of Jordan, and Joshua's receipt is right at the end, sandwiching them both. Both spies who had been sent out by Moses 45 years ago had never settled for second best through their whole 45 years, and they were now finally both able to receive their promise. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 to 8 says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Now we know Paul said this in Timothy. Joshua could easily have said this too. Caleb could have easily said this too. Are we confident enough to say this too? And the last thing to say is that God fulfilled his good word. He didn't give his second best ever. Since the covenant given to Abraham, he fulfilled it all. And God has promised to each one of us that He, too, will, f- will fulfill everything in our lives. He will complete His work in us, as Philippians 1 verse6 says, "Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until sorry, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus." So as we go out of here today, it's a short service. Uh, As we go out of here today, let's think about what might be our second best. Think about what we're hindering ourselves from because we're we're not listening to God. If we're bold enough to ask him, if we're confident enough to pray to him and say, I'm scared, but what have you got for me? Then he will remain faithful to you. Amen.